0: Because
1: part one, you have to understand to understand.
0: I I don't know if you were struck by this when you talked to like students um, around it. I think increasingly people don't know anything about it and barely know the word, know anything about it. I mean, we're now, you know, almost, you know, what are we, 80 years out from when it first started? So, no, 2020, we're 90 years out from when it first started practically. So why? And it ended more than, you know, 50 years ago practically now so in 2022 it'll be 50 years so since the study ended right right so who mem- so how many people really remember it is the other issue and I don't know that I mean I sometimes think that the only people who perpetuate it really are bioethicists and people in public health
2: or even politicians
0: or politicians right who want to use it against the ACA or something like that right
2: how are we supposed to how are we supposed to make it stick for people you know um because for example like the Stanford prison experiment is something that seems really prevalent for a lot of people it seems as if that mm-hmm. regardless of whether they do research or not they somehow understand this you know um, the Stanford prison experiment happened you know our professor even says that when they go through um, ethics trainings that Tuskegee and Stanford are taught by side by side and and then I yeah. I fundamentally think that they're very different types of studies and very different types of ethical violations. And right. So, no, no, no.
0: I agree. I mean, I think it's really hard because I mean, I actually talked to the it's um, it's a group called Citi C I T I that do the online training for bioethic you know for kind of researchers and I so I talked to them a little bit about um, how they how they teach it so I, you know I think but it goes you know by in one you know one slide in a PowerPoint so you know and it gets like bulleted. One or two things, you know, racism, government power. We didn't ask them, no informed consent, next. You know, that's it. And that's all people learn, if they learn anything. So it's researchers who might know a little bit about it and barely that.
2: To help you go further than a single slide, we need to first go back and talk about Macon County, Alabama, around 1932, the year the Tuskegee Syphilis Study began. The HBO film, Miss Ever's Boys, does a good job of representing the different social classes that existed in Tuskegee, with the character representing Nurse Rivers clearly living a kind of middle-class lifestyle, while the participants in the study were shown to be much more poor. It was true that Nurse Rivers lived a middle-class lifestyle, and her father was a man with high standards who was proud of her work and encouraged her education. But
1: the biggest issue we saw in the film is how they represented the conditions of the poor. While it's difficult to show how an economy works, the way they represent income level does not give justice to just how bad the living situations were for those who would later become participants in the study. In the movie, we see a house on foundation that has wood floors, screen doors, and drinking water. But in reality, living conditions would actually be like living in ruined shacks with a dirt floor, no screens for a screen door, and water would not always be safe to drink, often from a shallow well that contained soil drained off from farming.
2: Fred Gray, the attorney who represented the living participants once the case was exposed, held a press conference at the request of the participants on April 8, 1997, at the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, a little more than a month after the release of Miss Ever's Boys. Fred Gray listed several objections about Miss Ever's Boys, one of which was, quote, the film used four characters who were referred to as Miss Ever's Boys to represent all the 623 men in the study. These men were basically shown as musicians and dancers. That's not accurate. The men who participated in the study, for the most part, were hard-working, reputable persons in their communities. The depiction of them as dancers and quote-unquote shuffling Sam's who lived a carefree existence of drinking, dancing, singing, and cutting up is a great misrepresentation of the way people had to work in rural Macon County in the 1930s and 1940s just to make a simple living.
1: We thought it was weird that so much of the film was focused on this cutting up and their love for dance and music. With a series of dance competitions being major parts of the film, in one case winning a new record player, There's the simplification of the life that these men would have led outside of moments that we see in this film.
0: The study, in the end, really is about people who had no access to health care, and that makes it much more normative, you know. And I think that's why it's more racist, because it's more normal for the way in which we treated poor and particularly poor and black folks, which is to make it impossible for them to pay for health care. That's really what the study's about, it seems to me, almost more than the experimentation. It's about the failure of rural health, of lack of, of health care in the rural South.
2: and The truth is closer to this. These men and their families were often tenant farmers working a small plot of land in the middle of the Black Belt on land that was likely owned by whites. With maybe a generation passing since the abolition of slavery in 1865, those who worked on these tenant farms had little more opportunity than those before them. While they were free, they were not free economically.
0: So remember also people who are working, who are sharecroppers. I mean, not everybody was, but people who are sharecroppers are working outside of a cash nexus. That is, they often got paid in script, got, you know, got to buy food at the company store, whatever. And so, you know, a lot of people didn't. I mean, this is a wonderful expression. I always thought this was fascinating. In the South, called cash money, which nobody uses that in the North. Oh, really? But <laughs> yeah right you know you're southern yeah but think about in some ways why should there be a term called cash money that's what money is
2: with the restrictions that living outside of a cash money economy created oftentimes the only way for the rural poor to access health care was through discounted services from a sympathetic white doctor or from a philanthropy like the rosenwald fund now the Rosenwald Fund is glanced over in Ms. Evers' Eversboys and is not well explained on the CDC website. But without the Rosenwald Fund, the chance of the Tuskegee syphilis study would have dropped significantly. Because the work that the Rosenwald Fund did was actually good work. Good work that helped a lot of people in need. It did a lot of work to create a relationship with philanthropic organizations and the rural poor by offering free medical care.
1: All of the goodwill from the Rosenwald Fund's work is what created the opening and the incentive for the PHS to conduct the early phases of what would become the study. Dr. Brutus, who represents Dr. Eugene Dibble in the film, is seen to be conflicted and often opposed to some of the ideas, but the truth is more complicated, something we're probably aware of, but it is always difficult to come to terms with. How
0: did the black professionals get involved in it? Why did they stay in it? I mean, that was the part that fascinated me, too, essentially about Dr. Dibble and the black physician who you know runs the study for them, really, into Tuskegee through the whole, up until the last four years. I mean, he dies in 1968.
2: I, I thought was- it was very interesting, because you did a great write-up on Dr. Dibble, and there seems to be a lot of back and forth as far as how we're actually supposed to feel about Dr. Dibble's role, and I, I think you kind of said that we can't actually know for sure because because he did pass away before, you know, any kind of follow up was made and the best that you've done is through his personal correspondences but do you think that, you know, he felt conflicted about his role within the experiment or did you think that it was kind of at that time, you know, he was a medical doctor and he was serving kind of a greater purpose?
0: I think it's the greater purpose. As I said, he was both a science man and he clearly was fascinated by the science, and was concerned about whether or not there really was a racial difference. Um, and so he was trying to sort it out. I think, um, you know, and he supported research that was done at the um, the Tuskegee Veterans Hospital on the use of different mosquitoes um, and, and and in malaria and in providing malaria treatment as one of the ways in which he tried to get rid of syphilis was to give people malaria. Actually, in the twenties and they used different mosquitoes and different versions of malaria um, because they thought there were racial differences. So he's schooled in that kind of thinking. And I also think when you read his correspondence, particularly in the depression years, when there's no money. So, I mean, try to remember that this was a hospital, uh, John A. Andrew, that's set up mostly to take care of the staff and the faculty and the students at the university. And suddenly, It's the only black hospital within, you know, hundreds of miles. And he's taking care of people from the community as well as in this tiny little um, university-based hospital. And so I think he has to do triage all the time, you know, just all the time. And the other advantage was the connections to the public health service got him other things for the other physicians who worked under him. It got people to come for what was called the John A. Andrew Clinical Society. So they would come and do these special seminars on on different forms of healthcare issues that would help educate other black doctors in the community who wouldn't have the opportunity to go anywhere else and to get that kind of education um, because of discrimination and segregation. And so, you know, I just think he made a certain set of decisions about what could and couldn't be done. You know, and he's also a very interesting person. His whole family is fascinating because he comes from this very, very upper-class black family, and he's very, very light-skinned. And so once I, I did a... I remember doing a talk on it at UCLA, I think I was, and I had a portrait of him, not rather than the painting... Uh, there was a painting of him rather than just a photograph. And someone came up to me and said, there were no black doctors. And I said, Dr. Dibbles black. And she said, no, he's not. And I said, yes, ma'am, he really is. But you couldn't tell. He clearly could have passed. Like, in the film of Miss Eversworth, where they show him going to Washington, and he's sort of, like, going for the first time, and he seems sort of naive, was ridiculous, because he was an incredibly sophisticated man from this very, very, you know, major family. His wife, Helen Taylor Dibble, father is the first black um, architect graduate of MIT, and he designed most of the buildings at Tuskegee. So he was just sort of Tuskegee royalty. When I was doing the edited book, I had a letter that I'd gotten out of Dibble's papers. It was Dibble writing to Moten, who was the president of the university at the time, telling him what the study was about and blah, blah, blah. And I held my breath, honest to God, for about a couple of months when I finally got permission um, from the president's office. I think they probably just didn't understand how important it was. So I got permission to use the letter because I was afraid they would just hold it off because it completely countered what they kept pushing, which is, you know, we were manipulated too. We didn't know anything. And Dibble obviously wasn't stupid and knew exactly what was going on. (laughs) Right. Um, And so did Rivers. And so, you know, I just think there's a way in which the university has historically tried to use it as a kind of for us, you know, and not one more example of blah, 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 what happened. Instead of trying to understand the way racism puts people in a terrible situation in which there's no good answer.
1: What makes a great story is an easy-to-follow plot that is simple enough and usually follows a particular formula. In fact, memory is more salient if remembered like a story. So it makes sense for us to remember the easy plot and reject the more complicated construction of history.
2: But we need to remember that with a simplified idea of history, we lose so much nuance and understanding about the time period. The 1930s is three decades away from the 15th Amendment and in the middle of the Jim Crow era South and the Great Depression. A time when the largest insurance company in the world, Prudential, refused to offer any policies for African Americans, reducing their ability to protect their assets and help provide for the costs of a burial. If we went further back in time from the 1930s to the 1900s, we see the implementation of the doctrine known as separate but equal, a landmark case that stated facilities could be separated based on race, but must be equal in quality, a request that was often unfulfilled.
1: There were so many legal, social, and political hurdles that African Americans had to deal with during this time that the disparities felt were just one injustice on top of another.
2: And if we were to go back to 1845, J. Marion Sims, known as the father of gynecology, would be beginning a series of experimental surgeries on 12 African American women with vaginal fistulas, three of which would take the bulk of his experimentation.
1: Now remember, all of these women were slaves, as slavery wouldn't be abolished for another two decades. They were not given a choice in when, where, how, or who experimented on their bodies.
2: Recent articles have worked to maintain his legacy, while many find his actions to be unethical and untoward by modern standard. Marion J. Sims is another controversial figure, worthy of their own episode, and gives another example of the kind of mindsets physicians in the 19th century had.
1: With all of this in mind, we need to take the time to think about what kind of work a film does in simplifying the circumstances that surround an event like the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. It's good to represent the income disparity that existed in Macon County, but it's important to represent exactly how poor and excluded many of them were from a traditional economy. It's also important to think about the incentives that many of those involved in the study have. It allows for more complicated characters to exist in our minds. A doctor who is conflicted by the study but understands and is invested in the research outcomes and relationships provided by agreeing to the research.
2: And we cannot forget the history that surrounds the participants, the society that predated 1930s Macon County, Alabama, and the through line that connects incorrect medical ideas together. This connection of incorrect medical ideas would influence private doctors for many years. But a new breed of medical professionals, starting in 1912, would lead the charge to break the mold on not just medicine, but thoughts about race as well. The Public Health Service, or PHS.
1: Part two, and with the right kind of eyes.
2: Thinking about the Tuskegee syphilis study makes us think about standing on the coast, watching the waves, constant swell, up and down, most subsiding against the shore.
1: But every once in a while, a wave will build, swallowing up the smaller ones, growing taller. As you watch, you see it break with a loud crash.